More than three decades after six women were murdered in what became known as the Tainong North killings, Seven News has tracked down the prime suspect in the case. The man, now in his 80s, maintains his innocence and claims he's been accused by police of committing other murders. Their faces are frozen in time. Six women aged between 14 and 75, linked by the circumstances of their disappearance and death and their likely killer. More than three decades after the Tainong North and Frankston murders of the early 1980s, there's a community push to breathe life into the cold case via a community-funded billboard bearing the victims' faces. Ideally, I think the first point would be that people would actually start discussing the case again more to bring it back into the spotlight. While the spotlight has faded, the intrigue of the case has only grown. On December 6, 1980, the bodies of Catherine Headland, 14, and Marie Sargent, 18, and 75-year-old Bertha Miller were discovered in bushland off Brew Road in Tainong North. The remains of Alison Rook, 59, and Carmel Summers, 55, were found in McClellan Drive, Frankston North, in 1980 and 1981. A sixth victim, Neuromal Stevenson's body, was found two kilometres from the Tainong North burial ground in 1983. The common link between the victims is that they were all walking to or waiting for public transport when they were snatched. Hi guys, welcome to episode 14 of the True Crime Sisters podcast. I'm Harry and I'm here with my co-host and sister, Bill. Thanks to everyone who's been listening and for everyone who's left us feedback. Yeah, so just like Harry just said, thanks to everyone who's been listening. Um, this is actually our final episode for season one. So we'll um, still do our Patreon episode in on the 5th of September. That will be released and then we will be back in October. So Thanks heaps for listening to season one and we hope you've enjoyed it. Obviously, we've got some good feedback and some not so good feedback, but we've, we've both really enjoyed um, giving you guys some yeah, episodes. So hopefully, yeah, we'll be back next season to continue. And we just want to say a big extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters. We actually have two new supporters this week. So a big thank you and shout out to Jess and Meg. So as Bill said, we are still going to be releasing our Patreon episode on September 5th. So you can still join and listen to us there if you so wish. Um, you can check us out at www.patreon.com slash truecrimesisters and we will be back in October. So you can also join us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter to keep up with us. And now here's Bill. This week we're doing something a bit different. We've had quite a few listener case requests, but often these cases don't have as much information available about them. So we've decided we're going to throw in a listener suggestion episode every now and then to cover the cases you've suggested to us. If we're not covering your request today, rest assured we have a list and we will definitely work through them as quick as we can. Today we are going to look at the first two cases that were requested, which by a huge coincidence happen not too far from each other. The first case we're talking about is known in Melbourne as the Tainong North Murders and it was a listener request from Emma. And if this series of murders is linked, as many believe they are, then this killer has the highest victim count of any Victorian serial killer. On December 6, 1980, two men were in bushland in Tainong North, in outer southeast Melbourne, when they stumbled across what looked like two sets of badly decomposed human remains. The bodies were covered by branches that appeared to have been sawn off and dirt. Shocked, the men left the area and contacted the police. The following day... As the police and forensic examiners worked in the area, they discovered a third body. 
The three bodies were identified as missing woman Catherine Headland, 14, Anne-Marie Sargent, 18, and Bertha Miller, 73. The two younger women were naked when they were found, but Bertha was still clothed. Bertha Miller was the aunt of police chief commissioner at the time, Mick Miller. There were no signs of footprints or tyre tracks near the bodies, and most of the trace evidence had long been destroyed by the elements. The first of the three women to go missing was Bertha Miller, a 73-year-old woman from Glen Iris. It was Sunday the 10th of August 1980 and she was getting ready to head off to a service at the Methodist Mission Church in Paran like she did every week. It was a 400 metre walk to the Glen Iris tram stop that would see her safely board the tram and make it to church but she never made it. There isn't a lot of information publicly available about who Bertha was as a person. I did see her described as a spinster, which is what older single women were apparently called back in the 80s, so I'm glad society has evolved since then. The next to go missing was 14-year-old Catherine Headland. On the morning of the 28th of August, 1980, Catherine was spending the morning with her friends in Berwick, as it was school holidays. She was happy there and wasn't looking forward to her shift at the local Fountain Gate shopping centre that her mother had arranged for her. Catherine worked at the same supermarket her mother Hazel worked at, and she was supposed to be working a 12 until 4pm shift. At 11am, Catherine reluctantly informed her boyfriend and friends that she had to start her journey to work. She planned to meet back up with her friends after her work shift, but she was never seen again. It is thought that she was planning to walk down Manuka Road to the bus stop on the corner of Manuka Road and the Princess Highway. So these are both busy roads these days, but I'm not sure how busy they were back in the 80s when Berwick was more of a country town. Catherine was a popular girl with a love of horses. The Headland family had emigrated from Lancashire in 1966 and settled in Berwick. And I'm sorry if I said that wrong. There were some potential but unconfirmed sightings of Catherine that day. There was a bus driver who informed the police that he thought he had picked up a girl that matched Catherine's description on the day that she went missing. He said the girl was with another girl who was blonde at the Peel Street bus stop. The Peel Street bus stop is about 800 metres and an uphill walk from the Manuka Road bus stop. This claim was never confirmed by the police. There was also a witness who claimed she saw a girl matching Catherine with a blonde girl in the next suburb over from Berwick, Nari Warren. The next girl to go missing was 18-year-old Anne-Marie Sargent. Anne-Marie lived in Cranbourne with her family at the time she went missing. On Monday the 6th of October 1980, Anne-Marie left her parents' home to take public transport to Dandenong to run some errands. She didn't make it where she was going. After her disappearance, her father told police she would often hitchhike to avoid the fees associated with catching public transport. After some investigation into the Tainong North murders, the police looked into potential links to two other murders that had taken place in 1980 and 1981 in North Frankston. 59-year-old Alison Rook was last seen alive on the morning of May 30th, 1980. She checked in with her neighbours and let them know she was heading out to the grocery store, the real estate agent and the doctor. At 11am, she left to walk to the bus stop situated on Frankston Dandenong Road. Based on the bus driver telling police that he had never picked Alison up, it is thought that she didn't make it to her bus. Six weeks later, Alison's body was found three kilometres or 1.8 miles from the place she was last seen. She was lying in bush scrub next to McClelland Road. North Frankston is approximately 40 kilometres from Tainong North. In similar circumstances, 55-year-old Joy Summers was heading out shopping in Frankston. 
On the 9th of October 1981, she left the house, leaving her housemate a note stating her plans. She would have been planning to catch the bus along Frankston Dandenong Road, similar to Alison Rook, but she never arrived at the shops. Her body was found off Sky Road in some bush scrubs. Links were made that all of the women were looking to catch public transport on the days of their disappearance and may have been susceptible to offers of a lift. It was impossible for police to ignore the similarities between the cases. On the 3rd of February 1983, a sixth victim was found. A man was driving along the Princess Highway when he had a tyre blowout and was forced to pull off the road. He found himself in Tainong North. He took a short walk to stretch his legs and noticed a bone sticking out of the ground. Concerned, he took it to the police station in Warrigal. After testing, it was confirmed that it was a human bone. When police searched the area, they uncovered more bones. After testing, it was confirmed that the bones belonged to missing Brunswick woman Naramol Stevenson, who was 34 years old. She too had disappeared while waiting for public transport. After Naramol was found, public panic quickly escalated. Hundreds of women placed calls to the police to inform them about taxi drivers propositioning them to get in the car or men dressed as women offering them lifts. Women from the southeast suburbs were terrified. As police investigated the cases of the missing women, they concluded the six women did not know each other and were not connected in any way and were likely chosen at random. These appeared to be crimes of opportunity. As time went on and nobody was apprehended for the murders, public fear settled down. That is until Christmas 1988 when Catherine Hedlund's family received an anonymous card written poorly with questionable grammar. It read, I hope in writing to you I do not cause you or your family any stress. I can comprehend the pain, the agony you have endured to lose a loved one, Catherine. Not knowing when or if the perpetrators, single or plural, will ever be caught. Well, the new year may be good for you. Things may unfold, the name of the perpetrator, whose deeds make Truro look like kid stuff. I'll keep in touch sometime in the new year, a non-friend. For those that don't know, the Truro murders the author was referring to were a series of murders committed in South Australia in the late 70s. Obviously, this would have been very disturbing for Catherine's family, and it was clear that if the author was the killer, he was very keen on gaining attention and notoriety for his crimes. Five months later, the police CIB office in Russell Street, Melbourne, received a tight letter, which was addressed to the police chief commissioner at the time, Kel Glare. The letter read, Is the Tainong file gathering dust? Did you know you are dealing with a mass murderer in a scale never seen in this country? When police investigated the origin of the letter, they found that it had been posted in Preston, which is a suburb approximately nine kilometres north of the Melbourne CBD, so it's a completely different area of Melbourne to Tainong and Frankston. The letter also contained some details that were unknown to the public, including information about some of the jewellery that was worn by Bertha Miller and Catherine Headland. During police investigation, one suspect came to the forefront. For obvious reasons, we won't be stating his name, but you can find it pretty easily with a bit of Google stalking. The suspect was a devoutly religious man who had lived in the Frankston area around the time of the murders. He was a former bus driver who openly admitted that he liked to drive around and offer lifts to women. Not only did he have ties to Frankston, where two of the victims, Alison and Joy, were found, but he had also previously worked in Tainong North and would be very familiar with the area. This suspect would be 84 years old today. 
When the suspect was interviewed by the police, he told them that he had a 2 to 3% success rate of women accepting his offers for a lift. He was given two polygraphs and was found to be deceptive on both of them. The suspect was a shift worker, often working from afternoon to early morning, which would explain why the abductions and murders occurred during daylight hours if this man is indeed the killer. At the time of the murders, the suspect was working as a film projectionist in the city and drove a black Corolla panel van. His shift started at 4pm and ended at 2am. This fitted perfectly with abductions all occurring between 11am and 1.30pm. Following the murders, several women came forward stating that they were approached by a man in a black van offering them lifts. When the women refused his offer, they were told, you don't know what you're missing. He sounds like a bit of a creep. I know, I'd be creeped out if he approached me. So can they confirm that he's the, that this guy that we're talking about is the man that was offering these women or they're just saying amen? I think, I don't think they've publicly confirmed that. I think it's all fairly circumstantial what's out in the public at this point. But I think based on all the evidence, it, it's likely that it was him. Because surely the women could just see a photo, because they've obviously got this suspect, they know who this suspect is. Yeah. So surely they could just show the women that photo and they could either confirm, yes, actually that's the man who was approached, who approached me in the van. Yeah. And then you feel like, but obviously the I feel police, like probably the police, if they do know that, they would be keeping it under wraps yeah, so that okay. if eventually they can prosecute, they've got stuff that the public doesn't know about. Yeah, it just feels like they have a lot of information on this guy. And they do. Yeah, like it's a surprise. Like I feel like they've, put people charge people for less but obviously there's a lot of other factors we we wouldn't know about know about yeah the man offered an alibi for one of the murders stating that it couldn't possibly have been him as he had been at the bank with his wife at the time of the suspected abduction his wife confirmed this alibi however when the police went to confirm this with the bank there was no record of money withdrawn or deposited on that day the man also denied having links to one of the dump sites in frankston However, police also disproved that statement, considering that the man worked on the road the body was left next to. He also had worked previously as a truck driver at the quarry where the Tainong North victims were found. Although the suspect denied his involvement in the murders, there were times the police thought he was close to confessing. When they brought him in for interview, he would grow very nervous and sweaty. Just as the police were sure he was about to confess, he would go quiet and begin to chant religious mantras, falling into a trance. When he would begin talking again, he would be back under control and would deny his involvement again. This happened many times over and over. Eventually, his solicitor told him to stop speaking to the police. I find that part really weird, like yeah. going into like a trance and that would stating religious mantras. And then just come back and be like, no, back it wasn't under me. Control. Yeah. Really weird. And the fact that he did it over and over again. On the 6th of December, 1981, which happened to be the first anniversary of the discovery of the Tainong North victims' bodies, the suspect walked into Frankston Police Station at approximately 7pm and came across Constable Michael White. He said to White, why aren't I being asked about five murders instead of two, referring to only being asked initially about the North Frankston murders. When White pressed him about what he meant, he said, why wasn't I asked about the Tainong murders? Police had already realised that the dump site in Tainong had been chosen prior to the abductions and the perpetrator was just looking for an opportunity, so this brought even more suspicion to the suspect. The motive for the murders was thought to be of a sexual nature. All the victims were found nude, except for Bertha Miller, and initially the prime suspect was thought to be a prude. But once the police dug a little deeper, they found that in 1979 the man had been charged for soliciting a sex worker. 
He was also said to frequent local sex shops and fill out sexual adverts in magazines. When pressed on the issues, he maintained that I am not a sex maniac. The suspect had also previously lived in the suburb next to Tainong North, Garfield, in the 1950s and still had friends in the area. During the time that Catherine, Bertha and Anne-Marie were missing, the suspect's black van was reportedly seen parked outside an old friend's home in Garfield. One of the main questions people asked about the Tainong North and North Frankston murders is why did the killer stop? Multiple professionals on the case have stated that sometimes a serial killer is triggered by an issue in their lives, and when this issue is resolved, they're able to stop. At the time that the woman disappeared, the man and his wife were having marital issues, and they were talking about divorce. At the time they had fixed their relationship, the murders had stopped. This suspect is the only remaining suspect in the Tainong and Frankston murders. However, he remains uncharged. Police obviously do not have enough to charge him with the murders, and for this reason we cannot be 100% sure he is the killer. However, the evidence available is definitely compelling. Our thoughts go out to the families of the victims, and hopefully one day they are able to have justice for their loved ones. The Homicide Squad, uh, are, uh, as you'd be aware, uh, conducting an investigation into the death of uh, Kylie Blackwood. Um, we're now seeking public assistance in relation to a vehicle uh, that was seen in the vicinity of Kylie's home. Um, we've had some significant contact from the public. The public have been fantastic in relation to the face image that we've released. And now we're asking people if they'd uh, take a look at the car. If you've contacted us before with information that uh, relates to someone you believe is a suspect and you now see the CCTV footage of the car, and you can match those two together, we'd really like to hear from you. The second case we're talking about today happened not far from Tainong North, in the suburban town of Pakenham. Pakenham is an ever-growing southeastern suburb of Melbourne. This is where a young woman and her family were living when tragedy struck them. We are talking about the murder of Kylie Blackwood, and this case is a request from Amber. Peter and Kylie Blackwood lived in a nice, quiet street in Pakenham with their 11-year-old twin daughters and 13-year-old son. Their lawns were manicured and Kylie was said to always look immaculate. They were the perfect picture of a suburban family. Peter Blackwood worked at the local real estate agency. Kylie had recently taken up a part-time job at the local fashion boutique, which allowed her to enjoy her love of fashion. The family sounds like they were very happy. Peter and Kylie had fallen in love in the mid-90s, when they met as they both worked at the local hotel. In 1996, they moved in together. They were married in 1998, and in 2000, they became parents for the first time. The day of the 1st of August, 2013, started like any other day. The kids went to school, Peter went to work, and Kylie was reportedly running errands. A tradesman who was working in the area reports that he noticed a man looking in the window of the Blackwood home that morning. He reportedly then saw Kylie arrive home, hearing her high heels clicking away on the concrete driveway. And how creepy is that? Like, just the thought of someone looking through your window, like, that's your personal space, that's your house. Yeah, so it's creepy. Just creepy. He saw her enter the house through the garage, leaving the roller door open. The tradesman then saw the same man heading back in the direction of the Blackwood home and then hurriedly walking away holding something 20 minutes later. After school that day, Kylie's twin daughters arrived home and sadly discovered Kylie sitting upright on the lounge room couch 
with extreme injuries thought to be from a knife on her hands, face and torso. And that's just literally your worst nightmare, like for your child to see that. That's just horrible. And Kyle, like she never would have wanted that. No. That's so sad. The girls ran next door to the neighbour's house and told her, Mummy is bleeding. The neighbour entered the Blackwood home and saw Kylie sitting as if she was watching TV. The neighbour reports rubbing her leg to comfort her and telling her she'd be okay, but sadly she was already gone. The police were called immediately. Homicide detectives described the Blackwoods as a normal suburban family with nothing in their background to suggest a motive for the vicious murder. Initially, police were unsure whether the murder was a burglary gone wrong or if someone had been infatuated with the beautiful 42-year-old woman. There were plenty of items that would have been attractive to a burglar left untouched in the house. A beautiful funeral service was held for Kylie at St. Patrick's Church in Pakenham on the 12th of August 2013. 600 mourners huddled together to farewell the beautiful woman. Peter Blackwood paid tribute to his wife in the Herald Sun, stating... To my beautiful, darling wife and best friend, my love, you have been taken so tragically from us. Thank you for always being the most devoted, loving mother to our three wonderful children. Our lives will never be the same again. Seasoned homicide detective Charlie Bazina weighed in on his thoughts about the murder. He stated that he did not think it was a burglary gone wrong. He said it was rare that a burglar would stand and fight unless the victim knew them and they were fighting to protect their identity. On the 9th of June 2014, news broke that it was possible Kylie's killer may have used her bank cards in the hours after her murder. Although the bank had since deleted CCTV footage from that day, they told the police that they had made a mistake and someone had tried to access her account that day. Reportedly, three attempts were made to withdraw money from Kylie's account, but the wrong PIN number was entered each time. Following this report, things went quiet until April 2016 when police announced they were closing in on Kylie's killer. They had discovered CCTV footage from one of Kylie's neighbours showing a suspicious car metres from her home on the day she died. The police told the public they were looking for a white, late model Nissan Tita with a rear spoiler and released the footage to the public. They believed this was the offender's car. Police identified that there were 900 such cars owned across Victoria, 30 of which were in Pakenham. Phone calls came pouring in and the next day, the 8th of April 2016, a man was arrested in Roville, 38-year-old Scott Allen Murdoch of Morwell. It was revealed that police believed Kylie's murder to be the result of a bungled burglary turned opportunistic assault. This wasn't Murdoch's first offence. In 2006, Murdoch met up with a woman that he had met on a chat line, Hot Gossip. The woman was a single mum living on disability payments. He went to the victim's home looking for sex. When she refused, he bashed and stabbed her. She was stabbed twice in the neck, once in the cheek, and hit in the head with a heavy paperweight. He then took her handbag and car. Following this attack, Murdoch was jailed for five years, which in my opinion is nowhere near enough for that kind of attack. And obviously he went on to kill Kylie, so that's another monster allowed out on the streets of Melbourne, despite being extremely dangerous. Murdoch attended an out-of-sessions hearing for Kylie's murder, walking in barefoot and addressing the judge belligerently. He has also had a court hearing where MP Brian Painter, a close friend of the Blackwood family, had an outburst, yelling at Murdoch that he was a gutless coward. And that's fair enough. He pled not guilty to Kylie's murder. 
How horrible is it? Just another person who just should not have been on the street. That's Yeah, I think Melbourne has a bad reputation yeah. for letting out people that shouldn't be out. Yeah, and obviously we discussed it last episode, so we don't need to go into it again, but it's just, yeah, that is just sickening. Murdoch's defence is trying to hold off the trial because Murdoch keeps firing his lawyers. So currently the trial still hasn't taken place, but we will be sure to update you when things are moving again in Kylie's case. Our thoughts go out to the Blackwood family. Kylie sounds like a wonderful woman and an excellent mother. These are two very, very sad cases, and we truly hope justice is found in both of them. Thank you so much for tuning into our listeners' request special today. And um, thank you for listening this season as well. Yeah, we've enjoyed this season, so hopefully you guys have too. And we look forward to, yeah, keeping on going in season two. And so, yeah, obviously we will have that Patreon episode out on the 5th of September. So for those Patreons that we have, we will be releasing that one. So thank you for joining us today. And until next time, please stay safe.